Please turn with me this morning to Amos chapter 4. We are continuing in our series on the minor prophets. This is the fourth message uh, on the book of Amos. As you're turning there, let me just say that the prophets often use language that we might not expect them to use to get their points across, oftentimes biting sarcasm. Uh, Or perhaps we should say, since the prophets were speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord got his point across by sometimes using biting sarcasm. Who can forget the comical scene on Mount Carmel where the prophets of Baal were prancing around an altar and cutting themselves with knives and lances and spears and chanting, Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. What did Elijah do? He mocked them. He made fun of them. Call a little louder. Maybe your God is using the latrine. (laughs) Maybe he's lost in deep thought, or maybe he's asleep and you need to rouse him, wake him, call out a little louder. And so he mocked the prophets of Baal for their folly. St. Augustine said the ridiculous deserves to be ridiculed. And that's what Elijah was doing with the prophets of Baal ridiculing them for the foolish belief, their foolish belief in idols. And likewise, we find Isaiah mocking the man who fashions an idol by saying, he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, he takes a part of it and warms himself, he kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself, and he says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. He's mocking those who would look to idols as if they were deities who could provide any help at all. And then there's Paul in his letter to the Galatians contending against those who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. I wish those who unsettle you, he says, would emasculate themselves. His point seems to be, if they think a little is good, maybe more is better. Let them just remove the whole thing to show us how holy they really are. Jesus, too, sometimes employed sarcasm, as when he told the scribes and Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. You have a fine way of doing this. He's ironically or sarcastically complimenting them for doing something they know they shouldn't do. Way to go, guys. Good job. You reject God's commandments and you substitute your own traditions. Well done. Well done. There's even some righteous name-calling in the Bible. Paul tells the Philippians to watch out for the dogs and for those who are mutilators of the flesh. Jesus refers to certain men as dogs and swine. In the Old Testament, the Lord frequently refers to Israel as a prostitute or an adulteress. And it was an apt figure because Israel was joined to the Lord by way of covenant, like a man is joined to his uh, wife in a covenant of marriage. And when Israel goes astray to worship other gods, it's like a wife who is stepping out on her husband. I bring all of this up because we find a good bit of righteous sarcasm and name-calling here in Amos chapter 4, and this maybe helps set the stage for it. Look at verse 1. Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. 
Now, notice here that the Lord addresses the cows of Bashan uh, that live on the mountain of Samaria. Bashan was a region of Israel that lay to the east and northeast of the Sea of Galilee. It was known for its rich, fertile pasture land. In fact, when Israel was on its way to the promised land on the eastern side of the Jordan, and as they came near to this region, the kings of those regions rose up against the people of Israel and tried to prevent them from coming through. And God gave them victory over these kings and over their people. And a couple of the tribes of Israel uh, said, you know what, we have a lot of livestock, and this is land that's perfect for livestock. May we get our inheritance over on this side of the Jordan. And God agreed to that and gave two and a half tribes um, possession of the land of Gilead and then to the north of that, the land of Bashan, because it was good for livestock. The grant of land that God had originally promised to Abraham was all on the western side of the Jordan. But these two regions of Bashan and Gilead, God graciously gave to the two and a half tribes in answer to their requests. The cows of Bashan then were well-fed cows, typically larger and fatter than those raised in the other parts of Israel. But when the Lord addresses the cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, Israel's capital, the capital of the northern kingdom, he's not speaking to cows, he's speaking to people. And more specifically, as the context makes clear, he's speaking to the wives of the leading men (coughs) of Samaria. Pardon me. (coughs) He addresses them as the cows of Bashan. Now, do you suppose that any woman at any point in history, whether ancient history or today, would appreciate being called a fat cow? (laughs) I think not. It is an insult, and it's intended to be insulting. It's a very apt figure for what God is accusing these women of doing. Again, hear this, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. They are participating in some way in the oppression of the poor and the crushing of the needy. Who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Now, as we've noted before, much of the criticism that the Lord levels against Israel in Amos is directed at its rulers, its elders and judges and other people who are in high positions for using the justice system to oppress the people, and especially the poor, who were powerless to defend themselves. One of the specific charges in chapter 2 and verse 8 that we saw a couple of weeks ago was, quote, drinking the wine of those who have been fined. And it seems that this is an illusion to a practice that wants something like this, that somebody would be unjustly charged with an offense, convicted of the offense merely for the purpose of fining them so that those who are in position could take the fines and use them for themselves. And in this case, it was a fine among the poor people who didn't have money to pay the fine, but they would pay it in product, and in this case, wine. The, the, the wives of the rulers were encouraging, even demanding this of their husbands in power. Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. Bring wine that we may drink. God is saying, woe to you for doing this. You are oppressing the poor. You are crushing the needy by encouraging your husbands to pervert justice due to the poor. Now, the focus on this particular sin, that of oppression and injustice, will become even sharper the deeper we get into the book, especially into the next chapter. In verses 2 and 3, we find a description of what will happen to the cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, which, remember, was the capital of the northern kingdom. Verses 2 and 3, 
Say, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take, a, take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Now, remember, we've talked before as we were going through the book of Jonah that the Assyrian Empire was known for its brutality, and they depicted in their artwork what they did to their captives. When they would go and capture a city and they would lead the people, those whom they allowed to live, they would lead the people into captivity to be sold as slaves, and they would put a hook through their lip or a hook through their nose and lead them that way like it was a... Like it was a a cow or a bull or an ox that you put a hook through or a, a ring in its nose and to be led along. And they would sometimes lead them to a place of execution or they would lead them to the slave market that way. It was an act of humiliation and an act obviously that involved a great deal of pain. Sometimes they would use hooks and pierce their flesh and drag them behind horses or chariots. And this is what God is saying is going to happen to them. The Assyrians are going to come down because, remember, that's the imminent judgment that's just on the horizon. Less than a generation away, the Assyrians are going to come. They're going to sweep through the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're going to kill many and take many into captivity. And God is warning them ahead of time that this is what's going to happen. Verse 3, And you shall go out through the breaches of the city in the walls, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, which was a region to the north of Israel that was in the possession of the Assyrians. In other words, there's captivity that is coming here. Then there's more sarcasm in verses 4 and 5. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. There was a certain love of the ritual, love of the showmanship of worship and devotion to God. But from God's perspective, everything that they were doing in pretense of serving him is just so much sin. Notice what he says. Come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply your transgressions. When you come before me to offer your sacrifices, all you're doing is multiplying your sins. So this is a word of irony. Um, and this, I think, is a very, raises a very important point for us and one that's re- made repeatedly in Scripture, as it will be later in chapter 5. Isaiah also mentions this, that when the people of God live in willful defiance of his way and then come into his presence to worship him, to offer sacrifice or sing songs of praise, when there's iniquity in their hearts and they have no intent to serve him, the very act of worship itself is sin in God's eyes. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. God regards the spiritual state of those who bring him worship, those who appear before him. You know, when I read passages like this, I sometimes think of, um, you know, the Italian mafia. You know, some of those uh, guys are very uh, devoted to taking their families to church every Sunday. You know, uh, or say an abortionist who plies his trade through the week and then is a so-called faithful member of the church and that comes on Sunday and maybe even has a leadership position in the church like Dr. Tiller used to have in Wichita. 
Their hands are filled with blood and they come into the presence of the Lord and they sing their songs and they put money in the offering. And God says that act itself, though it appears to be an act of worship, is actually itself an act of sin and iniquity. These are the kinds of things that God is accusing the people of Israel of doing, specifically in this case, the cows of Bashan, the the wealthy women of some of the uh, prominent men in the community. That's the irony, that their worship itself was sin. Go to your revered places, to Bethel, to Gilgal. Go to your revered places of worship where you love to bring your sacrifices and offerings and keep on sinning by doing so. This will be spelled out in more detail in chapter 5. But the point is that by leading a recklessly immoral and wicked life and by committing oppression and injustice, whatever worship, put those in quotes, that in quotes, whatever worship they gave to God was worse than hypocritical. It was actually hateful to him, an abomination. Proverbs 28, 9, if one turns his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination to the Lord. So let's remember this, and let us never think that we can go on sinning willfully and still offer acceptable worship to God. Let us never think that we can purposefully, intentionally continue living in sin and somehow appease him by making a a showing on Sunday morning in church. I'm not talking about honestly resisting and sometimes failing, because we all struggle with this. Our sanctification is an ongoing work. God saves us. Upon our profession of faith in Jesus Christ, we come to believe in him. We confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. And from that moment on, it's a life of growth. And we never reach perfection in this world. I'm not talking about somebody who, who is struggling mightily and manfully and laying hold of the means of grace to live a godly life and sometimes failing. I'm talking about somebody who intentionally and willfully goes on sinning without regard to God and yet thinks that because they make an appearance in church or they do this or that good work that somehow that compensates or appeases God for the transgression. No, God will not hear us when we pray, if that is our way of thinking and practice. He will not accept our worship. Do you remember what Jesus said? Those who worship the Father must worship him, how? In spirit and in truth. That stands opposed to um, going through the motions, having a pro forma type of religion. In other words, according to the forms, the forms are there, but the heart is not. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, with sincerity, with honesty, not just going through the motions. In Isaiah, the Lord said, They draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that perfectly describes what's going on here in Amos. Now, in verses 6 through 11, the Lord speaks of his past judgments. And as we read the passage, note the variety of judgments that God says that he brought upon the northern kingdom, the different types or forms. He'll mention famine. He'll mention drought, blight, mildew, and locusts upon the crops, pestilence on man and beast, and cities in Israel that were destroyed by war. So verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. That doesn't mean he gave them good dentists, so he had good dental hygiene. It means you didn't have enough food to eat. Your teeth were clean because you didn't have food. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your palaces, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I administered a form of discipline, 
with the hope and intent that it would turn you back again to me, but you did not listen to me. You did not return. I also withdrew the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. On one field, or one field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. You know, God is in charge of weather patterns. We have come to learn some of the means that he uses um, to direct weather patterns, but ultimately it's in the hands of God. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. You didn't learn with the first instance of discipline, so I brought another instance. And still you did not return to me. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, some of your cities, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Those of you that remained, it's like you were just something snatched out of the fire and saved from the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So with each judgment, with each different form, one upon another, one after another, God repeats, you did not return to me. And so God escalates. God brings in different form, makes it more severe. And all of this follows the procedures outlined in the covenant. Uh, Amos, remember that the prophets are God's covenant prosecutors. He's reminding the people of God's covenant and how they have failed to obey the covenant, to follow the covenant, to be faithful to God, and announcing the judgments or the curses that are already entailed in the covenant document from the beginning. If you look with me or listen to me at least read from Leviticus chapter 26, all of this is spelled out, and and Amos is uh, following it at the Lord's direction. Leviticus chapter 26. first 13 verses, the Lord spells out for the people the blessings of obedience, the blessings of following the Lord. And the Lord always says, look, I want you to obey me because I want you to be blessed. I want you to find life. Sometimes people have this very skewed vision of God that somehow he delights in making life hard for us and that he is kind of this ogre in the sky that is mean-spirited. But he always says, listen, here's the way of life and blessing. Here's the way of death and curses. Choose life. I want you to live. I want you to be blessed. I want you to have long life and an enjoyable life. And he spells it out. First 13 verses, here are the blessings. If you follow me, if you're faithful to me, if you keep covenant with me, here's what you can anticipate, all these good things. Then in verse 14, He turns, he says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache, and you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. 
Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, and isn't that what the accusation of Amos was? I brought some form of discipline, but you did not return to me. You didn't listen. If in spite of this you will not listen to me, when I will discipline you, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like bronze, and your earth, um, I'm sorry, your heavens like iron, and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And that phrase appears several times over in the remainder of this chapter. I will do this, all with a redemptive purpose and redemptive intent, to bring repentance, to turn them back to himself. Just like when a parent disciplines a child, the purpose is not so I can vent my anger and frustration at the child, but so that I can mold the child's character, teach them the right way to go, um, and always using the minimal discipline it's believed necessary to begin with. And if that's not sufficient, it has to be increased. That's what God is doing with the people of Israel here. And he goes out through the rest of the chapter uh, that way. And, and that's what Amos is saying in his book. The Lord is speaking through him. He's saying, I did this to discipline you, and you did not return to me. And I did that to you, and you did not return to me. And so I did this, and you did not return to me. Over and over again, we see these overtures of God repeatedly making overtures, sometimes pleading, sometimes warning, sometimes bringing judgment, but making these overtures, pleading with the people to return, and they would not. The climax of the passage comes in verse 12, where he says, Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now, we as evangelical Christians living in the 21st century, we think, oh, to meet God, to have God show up in our presence, because we love him, and we want to meet God. And the Bible says that one day we will see him face to face. We are carried into his presence, and what a blessed, blessed time that will be. But in this context, it's not a blessing. It's an ominous thing that God is saying, prepare to meet your God. This comes in the midst of an oracle of judgment. He's announcing that this is going to be a time of great woe. If Israel had been faithful and obedient, meeting with God would have brought blessing and peace. But after all that's been said, it's obvious that their meeting with God will not be pleasant. It will be an even more severe judgment and one that will result in exile. In fact, in that passage back in Leviticus chapter 26 and spelled out even more in more greater detail in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the climax of all of these judgments, if the people will not listen to the various ways in which God was trying to get their attention, the climax, the final thing, was exile. I'm going to take you out of the land. Enemies are going to come in and take you out of the land. And that's, in fact, what is hinted at in verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you 
with fish hooks. They're going to drag you out of here in this humiliating and painful way. So prepare to meet your God. Verse 13 is designed to drive the point home. For behold, he who forms the mountain and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. What he says here is intended to heighten the fear in the heart of Israel. This God who you should prepare to meet is a God of awesome power. He's the almighty creator. He's the one who formed the mountains and creates the wind. And who knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man. So don't trifle with him. And don't think you can get away with the things that you've been doing. He's telling the people of Israel. Whether the men who are actually in charge and committing these acts of injustice or the women who are behind them cheering them on and saying, yes, more, more, bring us more. We want to be even wealthier. We want more wine. We want more uh, of, the, of the things that we can exploit from those who are already vulnerable and oppressed and crushed. God is saying, listen, prepare to meet your God. And what Paul writes in Hebrews is something that ought to terrify every one of us. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God gives this warning to Israel as they uh, persisted in their rebellion against him. God gives this warning to every nation who is disobedient to him. I thank God that he has opened our hearts, that he's opened our eyes to see that the ways of the Lord are just and true and altogether right. And for those who think rightly, about God's word and his commandments, his teaching, there is a beauty to it, right? It is, there is something that is beautiful about defending the rights of the oppressed, coming to their rescue. There is something beautiful when, when justice is done in a court of law and the guilty are punished and the righteous are vindicated. There is something beautiful in that. God has opened our eyes to see that. But you know, there are many who think just the opposite. They see power as an opportunity for their own uh, aggrandizement. They see power as an opportunity for their own gain, and that's how they, that's why they pursue power. It's a common failing among human beings. The big three, money, sex, and power, right? And power really should stand at the list, at the top of the list. Maybe it's at the end as a kind of a climactic element, Because with the power, then you can command the other two. It's not for no reason that there's a Lord Acton, I think, that said power corrupts or power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here are men who are in power, who are abusing their power, and they're exploiting those who are the least powerful in the community. And as we'll see, we'll find various forms of this in chapter 5 and again in chapter 6. Um, And chapter 8 addresses this again. God keeps coming back to this. And I think that these provide us with many lessons for our own lives as well. God has entrusted each one of us with a certain sphere of influence, given a certain certain amount of authority, a certain amount of power within our job, within our family, maybe within the church, within a business. How are you using that power? Is it for your own pleasure and purpose, or is it for the good of those that you are called to serve? Because you know what? God never gives anybody power without a calling to serve. That's the point of power. 
is to use that power, to use that authority to serve those over whom God has placed you. Parents are given a certain amount of authority over their children, not to tyrannize them, but to provide for them, to lead them, to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. God gives those in political power that power so that they can enforce justice, establish justice in the gate is one of the things that God will say in in Amos. This is what I'm looking for from you. Chapter 5, again, lays it out so beautifully. You come into my courts, you, you trample my courts, you bring your sacrifices and your offering, you think I am pleased. What I really want is justice to roll down and righteousness to come. This is what I want, establish justice in the gate. And so may God give us a heart and a mind to use whatever influence God has given us in whatever circle of influence, whatever sphere that he's placed us, to be humble servants of the Lord. Remember Jesus, to whom was given all authority, in heaven and on earth. He didn't use his power to abuse people. He used his power to serve. Is there any more beautiful picture than Jesus washing the feet of his disciples? And afterward, as the disciples are all befuddled and confused, what in the world is going on here? He says, I want you to do what I have done. You're not to be like the Gentiles who seek to lord it over others, but you are to be like me, a humble servant, to use what I've given you to serve one another, to walk in humility towards one another. And that's a lesson that we need to hear over and over again because our temptation so often is just the opposite. We get so focused on ourselves and our own needs and our own wishes that we'll use whatever means that are available to us uh, to promote ourselves. May God humble us. May God humble our nation and our leaders as well. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you today and we acknowledge that in many ways, Lord, we have failed to live up to the teaching of Scripture. And this is one that we often are tempted and sometimes um, fall to the temptation to abuse the power that you have given to us. We acknowledge that this is a problem for ourselves, that this is a problem, Lord, for many of the leaders of our nation. We ask, Lord, that you would grant repentance to each one of us. Lord, that you would help us to see that your ways are good and true and right and altogether beautiful. Help us, Lord, to aspire to holiness, to aspire to a life of service, that whatever responsibilities and authority you give to us, we view it as a call to serve rather than than as a call to lord it over others. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.